Joe and I watch a lot of true crime. Back when I moved into his apartment off Wallingford Center Street to help him raise his two little girls, we spent hours every night ordering food and devouring forensic files and the first 48. That was 2009, and by then Nancy Grace had made puzzling out the worst possible thing that could happen to someone a somewhat socially acceptable social enterprise. John Benet, Lacey and Scott Peterson, Jody Arias, Casey Anthony. I'd been a true crime junkie since college when I saw a screening of Paradise Lost. That film follows the so-called West Memphis Three, Jesse Miss Kelly, Jason Baldwin, and Damian Eccles, three outcast boys in West Memphis, Arkansas. They love Metallica in black clothes and were found guilty of murdering three little boys in West Memphis, Arkansas's Robin Hood Hills. Since then, I have devoured all three Paradise Lost films, culminating in the boys' release on an Alfred plea in 2011. Watching the movies, photos of the murdered boys flashed over and over, but I couldn't look away. I was drawn in by a story that remains a whodunit, a story in which justice for those little boys still remains undone. In 2007, I took a cross-country trip with my best friend, who had just happened to be my seatmate at that first Paradise Lost screening. We flew out to LA to pick up her brother and drive back to New York, where he would be starting business school at Cornell. When we hit Arkansas, I convinced my friend we needed to go find the graves of Stevie Branch, Christopher Byers, and James Michael Moore, the three little boys murdered in West Memphis. My friend's brother was driving. He refused to take us to any cemetery. What's wrong with you, he asked his sister, but he was really talking to me. I felt shamed. What connection did I have to three little dead boys in an Arkansas cemetery? He was right, I conceded. It was wrong to want to go. Looking back, it's ironic because we had left LA on the weekend Lindsay Lohan had become her fall from grace. She got arrested for something stupid in a Los Angeles parking lot. Before we left California, Matt had had no problem driving us past that. So heading to Donna's house on January 9, 2019, with Sarah Demio and the Faded Out team felt like a weird dream. At first, we were pretty sure she had no interest in speaking to us, and I could only imagine the thousand reasons why. Donna had blown off Joe's first call, thinking he was a solicitor. When Joe reached her again and explained what we were doing, she was all apologies and invited us to her home to meet her family. Suddenly, this woman whose pain I had only read about was going to speak to us. I wasn't just going to a cemetery to stand over the graves of children, knowing that whoever was responsible was just walking around like it was nothing. No, now I would be meeting with real people about the terrible thing that had happened to them, and I would need to look them in the eye. And this time I wasn't wearing cross-country road clothes. I was wearing a simple black casual dress, and I was mic'd up. We came bearing cameras and all sorts of sound equipment. The word surreal was an official understatement. But suddenly there we were, in Donna's kitchen. Donna's sister Carol was there, and her daughter Stephanie. The table was packed with treats. I will always remember they got us a basket of mini muffins. They made us coffee, and they were ready to talk. Debbie showed up a little later, shyly hanging in the door. She was ready to talk too, and her voice has become one of my most treasured weapons in this fight. Being a true crime junkie, I was always led to this. The bug bit me harder than usual when I read Michelle McNamara's book, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, upon its release in February 2018. Michelle had always been haunted by the murder of a female neighbor during her childhood in Chicago. She had embarked on an obsessive search to find the Golden State Killer, who had raped and murdered his way across California in a trail of terror spanning the 1970s and 80s. 
Michelle stayed up nights doing things other people might have thought were crazy, but which I thought were awesome, like researching rare cufflinks on the internet in the hopes they would match a trophy that the killer had taken from one of his victims. Michelle's book was published posthumously by her husband, comedian Pat Oswalt, and investigators and journalists she had worked with along the way. She died in her sleep at age 46 from an accidental overdose of Adderall and Xanax, which were kicked into a gear Michelle hadn't seen coming by an undiagnosed heart condition. Michelle's death was tragic, and the true crime community felt her loss. I wanted to be like her. Meeting Donna and her sisters was big for me. I wanted to be there for them, to solve their mystery. I wanted to be their saving grace. Looking back now, I see how that was arrogant. When I met her, Donna was turning 60, and Doreen had officially been gone from her life longer than she had been a part of it. Donna had seen police and journalists come and go, not to mention investigators. All told, Donna and her family had hired four men to look into her daughter's case. One who had collected $16,000 to tell Donna Mark was a liar, a bounty hunter who had been more interested in trying to get into Donna's pants, an agency that has since shredded its records, and my anonymous source, who was there when Wallingford's original officer wrote Doreen off as a little slut in the summer of 1989. Donna had even seen a psychic. Ann Beattie's 2012 article on Doreen for the Connecticut Post Chronicle is accompanied by a photo of Donna. She turns her face away from the camera, chin resting on her hand. She looks tired. She's at the same kitchen table where I met her seven years later. That night, Donna and her family met us with warmth and interest and hope. They had some questions for us, written out meticulously in a little notepad Donna was carrying. The very first, what is a podcast? The second, have you spoken to Sarah and Paul? That was the night I learned Sarah and Paul's names. To me, until then, they had just been Mark and Sharon's two other children, the ones Mark had called the two that didn't run away. That night, we spoke with the family for hours, and I left feeling energized. I took that energy to the Hartford Law Library, where I dug up the first documents I ever found on this case, Sharon's statement and the search warrants that the police finally got around to issuing in 1989. I called Donna to share what I had learned and found she was heading to bingo with Carol and Stephanie, so I, of course, invited myself. Donna helped me buy my cards and tease me because I called the bingo dauber a stamper. We talked all through the game and had some good laughs and were almost run from the hall with pitchforks by some women who took their bingo game way more seriously than we did. What made you venture out into the bingo world today? Me? Talking to these guys. Oh. I find a whole bunch had not, of... Had nothing better to do? This is what I do now, I guess. Bingo? <laughs> yeah, bingo. <laughs> hey, that's a pretty fun job, you know. No, I... I had don't, don't be quiet. I had somewhere to go to look up some stuff for these ladies that I wanted to see and that I wanted them to see, and I realized as I was driving... Time to play? I'm going to go see my friend Donna. Then I found out Carol and Stephanie were coming. And you still came? And I still came. <laughs> I can't stand it. Where does it go? I'm going to be 60 Thursday. On, thir on the 24th, right? On the 24th, I'm 60. Oh, you're a Pisces? No, I'm Aquarius. Oh, I almost made it. Does that mean, do you follow your sign thing? No. no. I just well, know I'm a I'm a little bit. 
You don't read your horoscope? I look at it, but I don't believe it. I don't believe it, but I read it. I read it. I would read it. I'd like to see a five-star day. I don't want to see no two-star day. A day is what you make it out. But my time with them that night wasn't all just fun and games. The women read over documents they'd never seen and got a whole new look into Doreen's last days. Stephanie read from the two-page transcript of Mark's interview with the cops, and her voice shook in indignation. Look at this fucking bullshit artist, she said. Hearing that Sharon had left Doreen inside the house to be beaten, Carol's eyes welled with tears. While the game played on, we were working. Wake up in the morning and go back to the law library, I think. Yeah. yeah. I got some more stuff that I didn't they closed before I was able to get everything. The police Is there anything I can do to I think just answering questions helps. I mean, because you're filling in blanks. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh-huh. Anytime. Yeah. Anytime. I did your 60s there. Thank you. And 39. Like I was, and 39. I'm sure you do. I really do. I'm sorry. Like I keep saying the thing I'm sorry. about. I'll cry myself to sleep. You know, Joe's convinced he was doing something else to her in that room. Yeah. And. Yeah. That didn't involve beating. You said that he never beat anybody. No, he really right. I hit her. No. He never. <clears throat> well, and I didn't realize because, like, I haven't had the opportunity to go over all your recordings. But it really struck me that that your story about the one time she ran away yeah. that he was there right on her heels. Absolutely. Try not to show him because I don't want him How to get How far away were Like when he followed her to your house, how far away were your houses? Like how? Well, he was in Bridgeport. He was in Bridgeport at that time. And I was in Waterbury. So how did she get there? I-26. I-26. She must have hitchhiked. She hitchhiked? I think so. I don't okay. know. I, I, you know, I don't remember. And so that. she, so describe it to me. So she, she shows up. Before. And he was right by. Did she say? Did she say why she left? No. No. How old was she? I feel. I have feelings. I understand. I twenty four. I two four. That's a lie. I wear my emotions. I my How old do you think she was when she did that, Donna? I don't think it was too much before. I, don't, I am listening. I don't remember, to be honest with you. I don't even remember the whole round. My, my young sisters told me that. The whole day of the... What? You don't remember which part? I don't remember who brought it to my house. My sister told me. I don't remember that. I-20. The whole runaway thing. You do. I thirty. I three zero. She never gave an answer. She didn't have time. A week later, I couldn't help myself. I found myself at the Danbury Courthouse, facing down the exhibits from Mark's gun trial. It was Donna's birthday, and they were having pizza and cake. I invited myself over. Again. I was boiling over with the emotion of what I was finding, and I felt the need to share it with them. We talked for hours over that table. All that talking brought up old wounds. Yeah. 
back in 2005, late 2005, 2006, do you remember the news when they said they, they could possibly in Pennsylvania have found Dory Vincent and somebody else and somebody else? Do you remember hearing that? Anyway, I heard it on the news one day. Was a, there was a, a girl that fit the description of Dory and another girl that was missing, okay? And I remember being so pissed off. My mother was the same at the time that it was on the news that they didn't even notify my mother that it could possibly have been Doreen's remains. So there was late 2005, early 2006 that I called the Wallingford Police Department and was pissed off that why did they call my mother, basically. And they said they had no control over the media and that the media runs with it if they think it's this. And um, I should be happy that they're still working on the case. And I asked if they knew where Mark Vincent was. And they said, no, if you know where he is, you let me know. We'd like to know, too. Or something like that. I, 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 I remember that. And they, he was real ignorant. And I wish I knew the detective's name. Yeah. I was like, I hung up the phone thinking, fuck you. Mm -hmm. Fuck you for the way that you talked to me, the way your attitude was, a matter of fact. Like, how, how dare you? When all I'm saying is, could you imagine if my mother turned on the news and saw this and heard nothing from you guys? Mm -hmm. Thinking, oh my God, did they find Doreen in Pennsylvania? Mm -hmm. So if you go back to 2000, late 2005, early 2006, we might be able to find the news yeah. that says could possibly be Doreen Vincent and I'm thinking, and this is how we find out? You told me about it. You said it was on the news too. You know what I mean? I don't know how you don't remember that. I do. I remember I was super pissed that I called the Wellington Police Department like, how could you not notify my mother? How could you not call her and let her know that you possibly found Doreen's remains and you're just going to let the media tell us? Well, the media just, you know, go and find missing persons and we got no control over the media and what they say and what they do. And you should be happy that we're still at least actively working on the case or the case is still open or something to that effect. The way he talked was so, as a matter of fact, and so cold. I've gotten that, that all, all that I felt like, you know, Eric. you're talking about my mother. You, you know, fuck you. Fuck you. You know? And if you know where Mark Vincent is, you could let us know too, because we don't. After Donna's 60th, with the airing of Faded Out, I fell out of favor with Stephanie. Our last meeting was at Aunt Debbie's, featuring a giant apostate dinner Debbie had made for Sarah, Joe, and me, alongside her sisters and her niece. I brought an insane amount of Italian desserts. To be honest, I was feeling guilty about crashing into a family's life, like we were throwing bombs at their doorstep, and here they were feeding us. I owed these women some goddamn cannolis, because by broadcasting what we were finding, it was almost like we were inviting the public to comment on Doreen's family, airing their dirty laundry. And that's what Stephanie thinks of me, that I'm ripping open her family's wounds for podcast ratings. And for a while that was hard for me to bear, I started thinking to myself, you need to stop. You're crashing in a woman's life. Her bingo. Her birthday. It's not about you. Also, why are the women doing all the work? Why are you? What about Mark? Mark, who told Joe all the way back in December 2018, I just don't want to go round and round and round about this anymore. And then I remember all the people who have been pushing this story for years. In 1993, two of Doreen's great aunts, Sadie Bailey and Rose Murad, along with her great-uncle Peter, 
wrote to the state's attorney's office to ask them what the hell they were doing to find Doreen. On July 21, 1993, all three received photocopies of the following letter from New Haven County State's Attorney Michael Deerington. Deerington wrote, I understand the grief you have experienced since her disappearance and the distress over the fact she has neither been located nor has anyone been held accountable for her disappearance. I want you to know that the Wallingford Police Department has been and continues to be anxious in solving this case. Any and all clues have been explored and any information received will continue to be closely examined. The interest in solving this is demonstrated by the fact that the Wallingford Police Department obtained a search warrant for and conducted a search of the home of Mark Vincent in 1989. As you know, Mr. Vincent went to prison as the result of a firearm found during such search. Since that time, Wallingford detectives have pursued other information. I wish I could tell you that we are close to solving this case. Regrettably, I cannot tell you this. I will tell you that the Wallingford Police Department and this office will pursue any and all leads and information we receive. Doreen has not been forgotten by any of us. If you would like to talk to me about this, I encourage you to give me a call. Darrington's letter echoed on in 2019 at my first FOIA hearing, cross-examining Chief Wright. I asked the chief, there has never been an arrest in this case, correct? In this case, he answered, no. In other cases involving Mark Vincent, yes but not this one. No one, including Mark Vincent, has ever been called to task for what happened to Doreen. The job of picking up the pieces was left to Donna and her sisters. Mark took the problem right to his mother's door and headed off to Teresa and Roseanne to lick his wounds. I guess that's the way it's always been. Men, bad men, come and wreak havoc and then leave the women to clean up the mess and bear the scars. And we do it, and we carry on. The last time Stephanie spoke to me, she told me that Doreen was just a happy little girl who just happened to have been molested by her father and asked me how I dared painting any other picture. But I don't think those two things can coexist because Doreen's story of what sexual abuse in a young girl looks like has struck a lot of chords. Since Faded Out has launched, I have been contacted by multitudes of listeners who want to tell me about their own abuse or about that girl from their childhood who they now realize was probably a victim Back then, in 1988 and 1989, we didn't have the words to express what we were seeing. The older sister of a friend of mine was obsessed with Appetite for Destruction, the debut album from Guns N' Roses, and Elvis Costello's Veronica. She also made a show of bringing multiple boys with her into the bathroom to mess around. We were expected to laugh in shock at the joke. Another friend of mine made some spare cash house-sitting for neighbors, paying special attention to caring for their plants. She would also use the empty apartments to have sex with boys. We were in eighth grade. I don't know what happened in her life to make her so curious at an early age, and I also don't know what became of her. Maybe she became a horticulturalist, like Lori Vincent. Lori's friend June tells me she remembers Lori at her table, slicing aloe. Lori's ever-present aloe plant, she called it. But maybe it's none of my business. But I'm not trying to dissect these stories for entertainment value. I'm trying to figure out what happened, and why. Because Doreen was a real person, a real girl, with a whole life ahead of her that was taken away. Sometimes I think I know too much about these girls, these women whose stories I tell you. I've steeped myself in their pain because I can't look away, and I need to get them some sort of justice. And that justice comes with questions, this time for the men in this story. Questions for Mark like, why did you feel the need to buy a gun less than a month after Doreen went missing? What did you say to Sharon to make her so scared? And who did you pass all those photos out to? 
As always, I have questions for the Wallingford Police Department. For example, why was Mark never charged with child neglect for failing to report his daughter missing for three days, or with child porn for those photos? Why did you ignore all the pleas from Donna and her sisters to look into what was Doreen's likely sexual abuse? Is it true what people whisper to me, that after the blowback you received on the Connie Zima case in 1986, the specter of child sexual abuse scared you off doing the work you should have done for Doreen? I wonder what Vera Zima would think. So let's put Mark and the police in the hot seat for a minute, because the women in this story need a break. Let's head back to July 1989, when it appeared the police only cared about one thing. They cared about the gun. I'm Jessica Fritz-Aguire, and this is Sticky Week. For episode six, I'm borrowing a title from the inimitable Georgia Lewis, Can't Keep From Crying Sometime. Walk softly, children. Walk softly, children. Walk softly, children. Find your freedom, little children. I'm Joe McGuire, president of Clovercrest Media and executive producer of this podcast. Thank you for your support of Sticky Beak. Jessica and I are doing all we can to get justice for Doreen. If you'd like to help us do that, please visit patreon.com backslash Sticky Beak. We don't want to ask for money as we work to solve this crime. So instead, we want you to be part of the investigative team. Each membership level gets you access to evidence, full interviews, pictures, video, and yes, Joe Rants. Our way of saying thank you for your support. Jess and I love true crime and are pouring our hearts and souls into this case. Please visit clovercrestmedia.com backslash stickybeak for all the latest on the case and to download new episodes. There's tons of other great podcasts where you can also start your own CMG Podcast. Here's Jessica Fritz-Aguire. In 2012, Sergeant Edward D'Onofrio of the Wallingford Police Department was interviewed by Jason Barry for the Meriden Wallingford Record Journal. D'Onofrio, who had taken the initial one-page missing persons report from Mark on June 18, 1988, told Barry that he and other officers had grown distrustful of Mark early. If it wasn't that night, it was the next morning. We realized something was wrong, D'Onofrio said. It was the interval that he claimed she was missing and kept it from his ex-wife. I never bothered to tell anyone either. I think the feeling has never negated. The longer it went on, the more questions were asked, the wider the gap got. If you're even a casual listener of this show, you know what to make of any claim by the Wallingford Police Department that they knew on June 19, 1988, what they were up against. And they sure weren't listening to Donna, who told Barry, I can remember talking to the police officer on the phone, furious, cussing because they wouldn't listen to my side of the story. They didn't want me to fill out the police report in the beginning because it would be confusing to have conflicting stories for any outsiders coming in who might have any interest in the case. That's what they told me. Sergeant Steve Davis, whom Barry also interviewed, was adamant the police had taken the case seriously from the beginning, even calling in the State Detective Bureau. Back then, they didn't just call the Bureau because a gumball machine gets knocked over, said Davis. A missing juvenile is not an uncommon thing in Wallingford. In this case, the Bureau responded. But Barry also interviewed an anonymous veteran officer at the Wallingford PD who wasn't so quick to laud how the case had been handled. 
It seems like some conclusions had been drawn, the officer said. To make the assumption somebody was at a certain place isn't the way I would have done it. From what I saw back then, I certainly would have raised an eyebrow about who was reporting this person missing and why. I would ask questions. I would nail him down on so many questions, and I wouldn't give him the opportunity to change his story. But something changed in June 1989, one year after Doreen disappeared, when Detective Tom Hanley took an interest in Doreen. Speaking to Jason Barry in 2001, Hanley still remembered the case number, 889112. Just one day the following spring, I asked Lieutenant Butka what had happened to the Doreen Vincent case, Hanley told Barry. I just got curious, I guess. I don't know what happened in the first year of the investigation. Not a whole lot of stuff was done, I guess. Two years later, Hanley left Wallingford to become chief of police in Middlebury, Vermont. In 2014, Terry Sutton wrote an article, never published, but featured on Terry's website, savagewatch.com. It's called, What Happened to Doreen? And Chief Hanley is front and center. The one piece of unfinished business I left behind in Wallingford, which has haunted me, he says, was the Vincent case. She was just a 12-year-old girl. Hanley has repeatedly rejected any request to be part of this project. After Sarah Demio and I tried to contact him in February 2019, this was his response. I continue to get requests, even demands, for an interview on the Doreen Vincent disappearance. I don't know if any of these inquirers are affiliated with your podcast or not, but my response remains unchanged. I will not return phone calls on this case, and it is pointless to continue to seek an interview. My published response is as follows. I decline the invitation for interviews. The case is under the purview of the Wallingford, Connecticut Police Department, with which I am no longer employed. It is entirely inappropriate for me to make any public comment on a case under the jurisdiction of another agency or on any open investigation. I have not been a party to this case for 28 years and have not seen any notes or reports since then. This is an open investigation for which the unauthorized relief of information is inappropriate or even unlawful, and any misstatements can undermine the investigation. Please direct any requests for commentary on this case to Chief William Wright of the Wallingford Police Department. Regards, Tom Hanley. Look, I get it. As I have been told countless times by the Wallingford Police, Chief Hanley isn't part of their department anymore, and he hasn't been for a long time. And I'd be kidding myself if I didn't get the concept of a blue wall. But I know that even now this case still nags at Tom Hanley. He told Jason Barry and Terry Sutton that he still keeps a photo of Doreen under the glass on his desk. In a strange twist, Hanley is now in charge of the investigation of Lynn Schultz, a Middlebury college student who disappeared in 1971 outside a health food store called All Good Things. That store was run by Robert Durst and his wife, Kathy. You might know Durst from his starring role and his hot mic in Andrew Jarecki's documentary, The Jinx. As for Schultz, Hanley told journalist Jack Thurston in 2015, I've got an 18-year-old woman who disappeared, who didn't deserve to disappear. We'd first like to find her and bring some peace to her family. And secondly, figure out who caused her to disappear. We don't let open cases like this, where someone's died, go away. Hanley arrived right on the scene when Mark was being forced out of hiding, after driving to California on a whim and failing to build an uneasy peace with his brother Brad. So Mark took a greyhound back to Connecticut where Teresa Lyon was waiting for him. He stayed with her, sometimes. Other nights he was with Roseanne Poloni, until the night the Wallingford PD busted him by coincidence because he just couldn't keep his act together. I talked to Brad about these women in Mark's life, and he was not impressed. He's a born-again Christian. 
He's found, seen the light. He loves to, everything's happy. I can't imagine being one of his kids and being jerked around. They got to be mental cases, those poor people. I mean, he jerks around adults. You know, he's, he's a world-class liar and, and con man. I mean, I, I don't know how else to describe him. He can, he can make, make you think that the thing is blue when it's actually red. I, I, he's just, and especially with women. He has an unbelievable talent for, for just snowing women. And I don't know how when they live with him. I, I think, too, the, the, the clothes, because he did that with all the women that he was with, really. Um, I think the clothes on a woman is just the, your way to exert control. I think he likes having that power over people. Yeah, but uh, I, any real person or any person that, that, I mean, you wouldn't let him have it. You know, you wouldn't be with that guy. Well, you know, these are weak. These have to be weak people that allow that to continue. I mean, yeah, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on you know, type of thing. Um, yeah, well, one thing I noticed recently is that all of the women that I have looked into or spoken to about Mark, they all, like Donna, right? Like, Donna really bucked his control a lot. And I think she you know, paid... She was only 15, though, when they got together. So after some amount of time, she probably did. But she, maybe she, she didn't at first, or maybe that's what pisses Mark, pissed Mark off. I'm sure there were times... When, if you go against him, you're going to pay a price emotionally, physically. I don't, okay, apparently not physically, although I bet Doreen, that's what happened with her. There's some penalty, you know, there's, there's some penalty for disagreeing with Mark or not doing what Mark says. On July 8, 1989, Hanley's partner, Detective Robert Fliss, sat down with Sharon Vincent to take her statement. That statement, you'll recall, featured the list of things Doreen went missing in, and Sharon's claim she'd been at church the night Doreen disappeared. But here's the last few lines. I also wish to add that sometime around the end of June 1988, Mark and I bought a gun. It was a small pistol with a cylinder-type gun. We also got ammunition for it. I registered it in my name. Sometime around October 1988, I brought this gun back to the gun shop, Silver City Gun Shop in Meriden, Connecticut, and sold it back to them. When Mark found out, he was furious and made me go back and get it, which I did. As far as I know, he is still in possession of this gun, along with another long gun, like a shotgun or a rifle. So Hanley turned to Mark for an explanation. Mark had been thrown out of Roseanne's and was now living with Teresa in Naugatuck. Teresa remembers that Mark made his way into her home during a terrible tornado that hit Connecticut on July 10th, 1989. He'd stay there until Teresa kicked him out. How did he end up moving with you? He just showed up one day. How does that? How did that happen? Mm. It was it was the same as before. He kind of just it was kind of gradually I, a little bit, but then he forced then, then it became like right in. You know, I got my own place. He would come down and we would go out, and then he had to go run back. So he, it, I don't know where he was running to. To be honest, he never said. And then when he then the tornado hit, and he was going to come down and visit, but he couldn't in because there were power lines down by my driveway and it was like a hill so I couldn't get out if I wanted to with my car and I said there's no sense so he says I can do it I want to come down I got you know he's all concerned about me that's a bunch of bullshit he was more concerned about his welfare and yeah. he did he came down and he jumped over the wires and made himself at home and then he just was there to stay really I was his uh, safe house I guess you could say. Did it seem like he was leaving? You said he would just go and be out. And did it seem like he probably could have been living with another woman? Because, you know, at the time he was. And then, um, like I said, something happened. 
like, can I borrow your car? I'm like, you know, and I always felt that uh, he, he'd take off in the middle of the night, not in the middle of the night, like around 9 o'clock. He goes, I got, I got, I got to go. I'm going to go. And um, he goes, I got to give a quote on, on this job I'm going to be doing. Like, really? In the middle of the night? Something, yeah. You know, like my ex-husband, he, he's, he's going to go out fishing at midnight all dressed up. And, yeah, okay, goodbye. <laughs> right. Right? Mm-hmm. So that, that's, that's when it was coming to the end. And I told him, I said, you know, I don't know. I feel like I'm being watched. I'm always, like, seeing these detective cars scaring him, scaring him enough to get the hell out of my place, which he did. He ended up doing. So you were doing that on purpose? Thank yous, no nothing. You know, I'm glad I used you. Now, where he went after that, I don't know. So did you, is that how you... It wasn't with his girlfriend, and obviously it wasn't with Sharon. I'm Donna. Where he went, probably to mommy's. That's all he runs to is mommy's. To make a long story, I did finally get him out of the house. Okay. He ran. He ran off. I told him, and I was like making him paranoid. And this is another quote he put in the paper. He goes, and don't let, he says something to the effect of that. He knows that the cops know they feel that he did it. Mm -hmm. He says, but he's looking, they're looking at the wrong person. You know, and he says, I lived in, I was, I never left Wallingford. And I'm like, no, that's not true, man. You lived in Naugatuck. And every time you left, you went to your mother's. A week after the tornado, on July 17th, Hanley spoke with Mark on the phone and asked him to come to the department the next day for an interview. That's when Mark demanded his photos of Doreen and claimed that someone had set off a bomb in his yard. He told Hanley that a gun was going to do what a gun was going to do. Hanley asked an obvious question. And you're a convicted felon, aren't you? Mark admitted that he was. And you know that's a no-no, right? Hanley prodded. Mark's answer. To have a gun in the house? To have a gun in the house, on your person, in a car, anywhere. I don't have a gun on my person, or in my car, but you can have a gun at home. Mark left the department a free man and went about making his living, including giving Teresa's father an exorbitant quote on a new roof to replace the old one destroyed by the tornado. Teresa was embarrassed. On July 31st, Teresa and Mark were together at her place when Lori called with news. I can remember distinctly one night, probably he had me on the floor doing sit-ups, who knows what, and he was call- He was talking to his mother, and he was saying, and his sister was freaking out because the cops were there tossing, they had a warrant. They were tossing her clothes, they were in her room, they were flipping all her clothes over, and then he said something, tell her to calm down, I'll be going to the legal library. At that point, I didn't know what was going on, to be honest, I said, what's, what's going on. He goes, oh, I don't know. The cops are all up in arms. He was very distant. He wouldn't, and it was like, don't even dare ask what's going on, you know? Okay. I said, well, what do you mean the cops are, for what? He goes, they're just looking for clues for Doreen, and and I guess they made a mess in in my sister's room. I'm like, I don't know. I'm not getting this. I'm, I'm young and stupid, but I'm not that stupid. And suddenly, there they were, the Wallingford Police Department and Lori Vincent's house. Mark's family tells me Lori was used to it by then. Growing up, the phone was in the kitchen, and they remember the constant calls from the police as Mark traveled up and down the state, assaulting and burglarizing and driving drunk. Sometimes, the family says, the cops used to try to make Lori feel badly for Mark, to tell her he was just a stupid kid trying to sow his oats. By July 31, 1989, Lori was over that story. She was standing guard over the search when Mark peeled into the driveway. Detective Kearns was in the garage, where he'd found a crumpled paper bag wedged between two wall studs. Mark came tearing into the garage, claiming to need oil for his car, and he found Kearns dislodging the bag. Mark screamed at the detective, You're not taking my gun! 
he got back into his car and peeled out the way he had come in, calling to his mother, make sure they don't take my gun. They're making a big deal out of finding it. According to a report on the search, the Wallingford PD turned up Doreen's birth certificate, those two photos of her, and a Rossi 38 caliber revolver with a two-inch barrel, serial number D814936. In January 2019, I made it my mission to find those items, but the clerk at the Danbury court told me they'd been destroyed. Not two days later, she called me back to tell me that they had not only the gun, but also the bill of sale, the consignment agreement, a target, and a green plastic box of bullets. Included in the records were a sock, a hat, and two pages of Mark's July 18th statement to Hanley, which had been used at his gun trial. I thought everything was destroyed, I asked the clerk. Well, she told me, sometimes the wheels of government grind slow, but don't quote me on that. I don't think I've ever gotten in my car faster to drive down to Danbury to look at those items with shaking hands. They wouldn't let me see the gun and the bullets, stored away in a safe. As for the sock and the hat, I had been stealing myself to see something of Doreen's. But both were large, man-sized. They were covered in little bits of sticks and leaves. Mark had used them to wrap his gun when he hid it in his mother's garage. I sat with these items for a while, studying them, feeling a chill down my back. Then I got back in my car and headed to Donna's birthday party. Back in 1989, the wheels were also turning slowly. On November 3rd of that year, Tom Hanley sent a letter to Sergeant Cataldis of the Bethel Police Department captioned, Regarding Mark Vincent, Sunset Hill Road, Bethel, Connecticut, possession of handgun by convicted felon. That letter reads as follows. On July 31st, 1989, our department executed a search and seizure warrant at the Vincent residence, Sunset Hill Road, Bethel, relative to the investigation of the suspicious disappearance of Mark Vincent's daughter. During the search, if you recall, we recovered a handgun owned by Vincent, which he had his ex-wife purchase for him. Enclosed is our report detailing the circumstances surrounding Mark's possession of the handgun, in the event you decide to do an arrest warrant for him, since the violation occurred in your town. We have the gun here, and we'll transfer it to your department for evidence in the event you want to pursue it. For intelligence purposes, Mark is now residing with a Therese Johnson in Naugatuck. His driver's license is suspended and he is reported to be carrying a cut-down shotgun with him. It's not clear to me why Hanley took more than three months to send that letter to the Bethel PD, or why it had to be Bethel and not Wallingford who handled it. I'm also not sure if Therese Johnson is really Theresa Lyon, but I do know that the Wallingford police, in 2019, denied knowing who Theresa Lyon was. Perhaps not so surprisingly, Bethel has been very evasive as to all my requests for records. Maybe it's time they got a FOIA complaint of their own. Mark wasn't arrested for the gun until March 5, 1990, and his trial didn't begin until January 1991, two and a half years after Doreen vanished. It took four days and featured a six-member jury. Connecticut Assistant State's Attorney David Holtzbach appeared for the state, and Norton Feinstein was there to represent Mark. Judge Edward Farrison presided. Debbie, Donna, and Carol were there every day. So was Valerie Roth of the Danbury News Times, to whom I owe a debt of gratitude for her extensive reporting on this particular chapter of Doreen's story. Mark faced up to five years in prison if convicted, with extra time added because he was a felon. As the trial kicked off, Mark's attorney tried and failed to get the police to admit their entire aim in getting the search warrant to look for Doreen's things was really aimed at finding that gun. Edward Dewey, owner of the Silver City Gun Shop in Meriden, testified on January 17, 1991. Under direct examination from State's Attorney Holtzbach, 
Do we recall the July 1988 day when Sharon came in with Mark and spent $120 on a 38 caliber Rossi five-shot revolver with a walnut handle and two-inch barrel? Do we also recall November 22, 1988, the day Sharon came back in alone and pawned the gun for $50? Dewey said Sharon was scared and confided in him she didn't want Mark having a gun, but she was back the next day, November 23rd. She'd gotten in trouble with Mark, and she was there to plead for the gun back. Feinstein, on cross-exam, tried to point the finger at Sharon. He made sure the jury knew the Rossi was a woman's gun. And Dewey admitted the Rossi was commonly sold to women because of its smaller size. A lot of women buy them. More than men, Dewey said. He also admitted, I've sold them to priests. When I told Mark's brother Brad this story, he found it familiar. Brad said Mark has always been one to pass blame. When did he start getting in trouble? When did you start noticing that something was not right with him? The burn fan wire. <laughs> we have a, a fan in the bedroom, right? We didn't have air conditioning in those days. He and I shared a bedroom, bunk beds. How old were we? I don't know, eight, nine, something like that. And he, he took a lighter and he burned the fan wire and it really stunk up the room. And my parents came in or mom or dad or something. And he said that I did it. It was kind of like, you know, there's a specific that has stuck with me. That's probably the earliest specific of, of his. And just, he would, he, and you didn't realize that he was, that he was the guilty one for a while because he was, even at that age, he was, as he grew up, he was really good at figuring out how to cover stuff up and blame somebody else. And so, you know, life would go on seemingly normal for a while and then there'd be an event. And, oh, you know, he always claims he wasn't involved or he didn't do it or he didn't start it. He has massive rage. He can, he can go off at the smallest thing, especially if he thinks he's being accused of something and he's trying to cover it up. Then he will use that to divert, you know, attention or to shut the other person up. He has a horrible temper. Yeah, I've heard that, too, that if you start to maybe question or dig too deep or maybe get a one-up or, or know more than he thinks you should, then he shuts you down by... Yeah. Yeah. That's going to that's gonna make you back off because, you know, but, but that's that's a, obviously a tactic to, to stop asking questions, you know, where you might find out that he's guilty, however you want to phrase that. Getting my hands on the enormous trial transcript, I noticed Sharon listed as a witness. I tore past the examinations of Dewey and the cops, looking for her testimony, hoping to find some clue in her words. But as usual, Sharon held her cards to her chest. I first found her name on the original day she was supposed to testify, but she didn't make it. Attorney Holtzbach told the court that Sharon was a single mother, on welfare with two small children and a significantly limited budget. She just couldn't make it. The lawyers had saved Sharon for last, telling Judge Farazin they expected her testimony to take several hours. But when Sharon finally made it to court to testify, she couldn't do it. She claimed the Fifth Amendment. She was on the stand for less than two minutes. She was 28 years old. Whether Sharon stood by her man to protect Mark or to protect herself, the testimony portion of the trial was over, and both sides rested their case. Mark's attorney did so without calling a single witness, including his own client. I didn't have to, he said. They didn't prove their case. Feinstein told the jury that the state's case was full of holes, presenting a lot of reasonable doubt. Just because he knew the gun was there, Feinstein told the jury, doesn't mean he possessed it. Holtzbach, arguing for the state, used that testimony to bolster his case, quoting police officers who heard Vincent use the personal pronoun, my, in referring to the gun. That's my gun, Holtzbach paraphrased. 
You can't get any more specific than that. No one else claimed this weapon except Mark Vincent. Holtzbach dismissed Feinstein's argument that Vincent may have referred to the gun as his because his wife owned it and, quote, husbands and wives own things together. Judge Farazin instructed the jury that to find Mark guilty, they needed to determine he had exhibited dominion or control over the gun. As the jury readied to begin deliberations, defense attorney Feinstein noticed Donna in the gallery with her sisters and her aunt. He was concerned, he told the judge, that the women had tried to use their presence to influence the jury emotionally. So Judge Karazin told them he expected no outbursts, and Donna and company complied. For his part, Mark didn't remain quiet. Lingering in the hallways, waiting for a verdict, Mark was clear that he expected to be acquitted. On January 19, 1991, he told Valerie Roth of the Danbury News Times that he wasn't there for the gun. I'm here because they're accusing me of being involved in my daughter's disappearance, Mark said. They have no answers as to the whereabouts of my daughter, and they've drawn their own conclusions. Mark told Roth he had no idea where Doreen was, but I love my daughter very much, he said, and so on and so forth. Not to be outdone, Donna's family made sure reporters gathered in the courthouse hallways knew that Doreen wasn't a runaway. She would always pick up a phone wherever she was, Doreen's great-aunt told Evan Goodenow of the Danbury News Times. The jury found Mark guilty on January 23, 1991. State's attorney Holtzbach was pleased. It was a clear-cut case, he told Valerie Roth. He knew he should not have had the gun, and he got caught. I think justice has been done. Mark's attorney was not singing in the same tune, telling Roth he was very disappointed and planned to appeal. Judge Karazin scheduled sentencing for March 5, 1991. He rejected the state's request to increase Mark's bond from $2,000 to twenty, and said settling on 15000 Sentencing was dependent, Karazin warned, on an investigation completed by probation officials. When asked to give a permanent address, Mark told the judge he lived in Bethel with his mother, although Roth noted for the Danbury Times that Mark had told her previously that he wasn't living there anymore. Mark told the judge he was working steadily in the area, including installing second-floor sheetrock for a woman named Carol Fabian in Trumbull. Another woman named Joanne King presented herself to pay Mark's bail. Mark's brother Brad told me that this was another game of Mark's he knew all too well because Mark had been playing it his entire life. I don't know how he does it, but... What's he using people for? Anything and everything? Yeah, he needs money, he needs a place to stay, he needs a job. I mean, look what he did with me. I mean, there's just a perfect example. You know, he just needs, he needs something. Or he has to be gone from Connecticut. Let's go visit Brad. And oh, gee, dear brother, it's been so long since we've seen each other. Wow, you know, and by the way, can you, you know, I need a job. And so you go and get him one and he doesn't show up. I mean, that's just a prime example of mm-hmm. what he does to people. Was that the last time that you saw him? Was that the time you said, that's it, no more? Yeah. Okay. Now, I think my mom, you know, over the years, you know, she's probably disowned him several times. And he comes back with some line, okay, it's a mom. You know, my mom's was pretty strong, but, you know, okay, she's still a mom. So, okay, it's been five years. And it's like, you know, whatever, he needs something, he's sweet. Yeah, he just, he just. He just has a way with people, even when you're saying in your own head, you know, I doubt this asshole's changed, you know, well, okay, let's see what he got to say, you know, blah, blah. His family, I guess, biologically, uh, that's about all. Well, 
I, it strikes me with your mom. I mean, you know, we know a lot more these days about abusive relationships and how you keep someone on the hook and you almost make them feel guilty for rejecting you. And it was his mother. So having children and having a son, I, I would hope. That's what I mean. Even my mom, he would use, he would, he'll use whoever he has to use to get what he needs. It doesn't matter who it is. And and lie right to your face and and you, you believe in it, it, at least at some level. Uh, it, yeah, he's just he's amazingly talented that way. So you were always finding that you guys were shelling out stuff and that what? It sounds like the Burt fan wire, right? You're shelling out stuff, you're giving, you're sacrificing for whatever he needs when he needs it. And then he's what, turning around and stabbing you in the back? Well, yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, or maybe not stab you in the back, but just if he made a promise about paying back money or if he, you know, whatever it was that his sweet talk you know, it, it's not true. He's not changed. He's not, he's just, again, who, whoever he has to con, whoever he, whatever it is he needs, he figures out who can best get him, get it for him. Like right now, Pastor Rick, that's an interesting situation. You know, is, there, is he hiding there? He gave them a, a line of BS three miles long. Yeah, some of the parishioners seem to think he's a piece of garbage, but he's still there. And is this guy, Rick, protecting him? But that's what I mean. He can get people to do whatever the hell it is he needs. He, I, I don't know how, even though I've been partially blinded myself. But Well, you're his brother. I get it. Judge Karazin let Mark go, but warned him not to flee. You don't want to become a fugitive, Karazin said. That would really be the end of your life. But Mark wasn't worried about such little silly things. At the required interview with probation authorities before he would be sentenced, Mark simply stormed out, leaving the officers scratching their heads. They were willing to try again, they told the court, but Mark was in the wind. Again. On May 2, 1991, Valerie Roth wrote another article entitled Judges Had It With Missing Felon. As of that date, Roth reported, Mark's sentencing had been postponed several times. His own lawyer put it at eight. Feinstein, like most people who have dealt with Mark, was dumbstruck. He told Judge Karazin he didn't know where Mark was and had been getting in touch with him through friends. Mark, Feinstein said, had made a habit of calling his law office every day at 4 p.m. for news, but had missed the judge's most recent order that he appear in court for sentencing because it had come later in the evening. Judge Karazin ordered that the bail bondsman who posted Vincent's $15,000 bond be notified he might have to pull it. Karazin was angry that Mark had clearly lied when he said he lived with Lori and Bethel and rescheduled the sentencing for June 12th, on the condition that Mark supply the court with an address and telephone number. I'm very unhappy this man does not seem to have a permanent address, Karazin said. If he has to give a couple of telephone numbers, he'd better give them, in case they want to reach him at 3 o'clock in the morning when most people are home. Why can't you reach this man? Doesn't he have a place that he puts his head down on a pillow at night? Mark wasn't there, but Sharon was. So was Donna. I don't think he's coming or ever intended to come, Donna said. He's probably in Canada by now. And while I don't know for sure, I think this is the day Sharon stopped Donna to tell her to never let Doreen go with Mark again. Feinstein moved to overturn the verdict on the grounds that Mark hadn't owned the gun and argued that Karazin had given wrongful instructions to the jury. He moved for a new trial. Karazin denied both motions, and Feinstein now told reporters that he had no plans to appeal. That would not always be the case. June 12, 1991 arrived, and again, Mark didn't present himself as ordered. A Bethel incident report dated July 10, 1991, shows a contingent of uniformed officers went to an address in Milford, where they'd track Mark down. 
Via car phone, they called the home's owner, Kathy Androsco. They told her they knew Mark was in the house and asked her to send him out. Kathy denied that Mark was there and even came out of the house to tell the cops that personally. Meanwhile, some of the officers walked to the backyard, where they found Mark trying to sneak out the back door. He was taken into custody without incident. Mark finally appeared for sentencing on August 16, 1991, more than two years after Wallingford cops had found his gun in Lori's garage. Valerie Roth described him as dressed in white pants, a blue and white striped shirt, and shiny handcuffs. Guys, I don't think Valerie liked Mark that much. Attorney Holdsbach asked Judge Karazin to sentence Mark to five years. Mark got four. He eventually moved back in with Kathy, the woman who had hidden him out, and married her. Their son was born in 1994. With all due respect to Mark's family, to his children and his wives, all I can think of is Brad Pitt in the bathtub, listening to Fight Club's unreliable narrator Jack talk about his father. His father abandoned family after family to just settle down again in city after city. Fucker setting up franchises, Pitt says, folding a washcloth over his eyes. I think about Mark's family often, because lately they have been doing their own work. It's been a long time, but they're on board with seeing some justice done. And there's one little thing I haven't shared with you, because Joe and I went to grade school together. He was there when Emily died, and Christine was terrorized, and Laura was stalked within an inch of her life. Joe remembers being at the 1988 school Christmas fair when he was in eighth grade, and I was in fifth. He remembers he and his classmates confronting Christine's stepfather in the kindergarten room, whacking him with clubs from the putt-putt game. I remember hearing my dad that night, he of the vigilante justice, telling my mother and his friends he'd escorted a known pedophile out of the fair. But I'm a Green Beret, the man protested. My father was not hearing it. I look back and I wonder if that Green Beret was Christine's stepdad, and if Joe's world weirdly collided with my dad's that day. They were both angry and frustrated and sick that a monster was in our midst. 22 years later, in 2020, Mark's brother Brad gets it. Brad's been very vocal with me about Mark. Since he found out about Sticky Beak and faded out, in November 2019. And I was no damn angel. I mean, I was out. We had fireworks wars and stuff when fireworks were illegal. You could still get them down south. And I, I was chased by the cops. I, but not not stuff. You know, I call that good, clean fun. That not stuff to the extent where you're hurting other people. And, you know, he he his ability with mind games, just phenomenal, even from a fairly early age, I guess. It's the way it seems. And he was hurting other people from an early age, you think? Well, there's the, he, how old was he that when he got uh, mad at that, uh, what was it, a bar, bar owner, burned down his house. The bar, he burned down what the bar. Then? What's that? He burned down the bar. Burned down the bar, yeah. You know, stuff like that. And he, 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 would, he didn't care who he hurt as long as he got what he needed. You know, he would lie straight to your face. And your parents tried to help him, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, he, he was in and out of jail, and you know, my mom gave up on him at one point. Um, my dad, I don't know, for some reason, my dad felt guilty. You know, we talked about this a little bit. Um, my, my dad felt guilty that Mark needed more, quote, unquote. And one of the things my dad told me before he died, and he wasn't doing this to be vindictive or something but he said you know a big part of mark's problem is is that he couldn't compete with you Hmm. 
legal level, we were very, yes, I went on to college. He dropped out of high school. He dropped out of high school. I don't know if that's part of competition. It, it doesn't seem like it, but, but maybe. Um, oh, anyway, Mark, there was something wrong with Mark coming out of the womb, whether it was the umbilical tangled around his neck. I mean, whatever it was, he was way different than the four of us. Mm-hmm. That's not to say that we were perfect or anything. Here's an email Brad sent to his brother this Thursday, March 12th. He copied Pastor Rick and me. Mark, to be honest, I'm surprised that you're still alive given what I know about you and what you've done to others, and I don't even know the half of it. The damage that you've done to your biological family and all of your other families since, you are not capable of understanding. For example, how do you justify killing Doreen? You got pissed about something like, oh, she was masturbating, or oh, she didn't listen to your idiotic rules when you are born again. No, you can't wear pants. No, you can't do this or that. Do you have any idea what damage you did to Donna's sisters when you, quote, played with them? Why is it okay for you to have done this much damage and now get protected by Pastor Rick and the rest of that mess where you are hiding? Can you even imagine what a sane person thinks looking at you? You're a fucking piece of shit, and I hope you burn in hell or at least go to jail. Your loving brother, Brad. Some righteous indignation is not only good, it's deserved. Because there's a lot of men out there who have a lot of explaining to do and need to be called to task. And it's important to remember that men have been there, have tried to help however they could. Remember Brad. Remember Mark's father, George Vincent. Remember Tom Hanley and Bob Fliss and Peter Murad. But while you're doing that, remember Donna. In 2001, she told Jason Barry that she just wanted justice to be done and that it was long overdue. At this point, she said, it's been 11 or 12 years. How much of a sense are you going to pick up? How much digging are you going to do? Donna was candid with the reporter that while she hoped Doreen was alive, she had come to realize she couldn't be. All she really wanted, Donna said, was a place for Doreen, a gravesite where she could visit her daughter. You want some sort of closure, Donna said. I just kind of stand by myself. But Donna's not standing by herself. She's surrounded by a team of good women who bear the pain with her, like her daughter, Stephanie. She and Donna call each other bestie, and they wear twin trees of Lebanon charms around their neck. They go to bingo every week. Stephanie was there the day Mark poked his head in the car. That day, Detective Cameron was walking around with his posters, announcing Doreen had run away from home. The day she realized her sister was gone forever. Here's Stephanie at her mother's birthday all the way back in January 2019. Stephanie might not be a fan of mine, but she's always had her eye on the real bad guy, and she's always had her mom's back. You know, she was my age. Like, she was my age, and I'm a mom. And I can't even imagine what that feels like. I can't either. I can't imagine. That's the way I feel. I have a 12 year old. That's the way I feel. I just can't even imagine something my 12 year old, you know? And I don't mean to speak for you, but I feel like if you knew or if someone said, you know, I'm sorry, or if somebody got punished, it might make you feel better. I mean, I don't know. I would like to see you know, as far as the justice. Yeah, I'd like to see the truth. Even even if he said it on his deathbed, you know, I I would just like to know. Mm -hmm. That's all. Not knowing is the hardest part. It is.
that's yeah. I would want to know regardless of what happened. That's what I said. That was one of my questions that I put in the paper. If, if you guys get to talk to Mark and, and it gets up to the point to where he's like a few guys and you guys are getting right, can you ask him if you knew you were dying of cancer next week or something or in, in a few months? Could, would you just tell us the truth? Yeah. Or when you get to be 80 years old, can you tell me the truth of what happened to her? Can you ever admit it? If you were leave on your deathbed, leave it with write a note, you know, write it and leave it with the lawyer. And let you, yeah, us open right up when you're dead. I don't care. Just, just tell us the truth. I don't know That's if he's it. healthy. I'm not that healthy, so he'll probably outlive me. Right. Each other good die young. So when you remember Doreen, remember Stephanie, and Donna too. Remember Carol, Debbie, Lori, Jane, Rose Murad, Sadie Bailey, Teresa Lyon, Roseanne Poloni, Carol Fabian, Joanne Kang, Kathy Androsco Vincent, and, as always, the inimitable Georgia Lewis. Lord, I just can't keep from crying sometimes. One. Day.